0: I want you to very, very carefully follow every word that I am about to utter. And this is serious. This is probably the most, one of the most serious things that's ever happened in this country. And I believe that I am the first man in the eastern section of this United States to have discovered it. It's a terrible plot, an awful thing that's beginning to happen. Now let me tell you exactly what happened. I come down to the station this morning. Now the station is a standard, ordinary sort of building. I mean, it's an office building, you know? There are all kinds of accountants, second-rate dentists, guys who do tax returns. There are Christmas tree salesmen, all sorts of ordinary businessmen up and down throughout this entire gigantic honeycomb of a building. It's right here on Broadway, right in the middle of Manhattan, right in the middle of these United States. Stable country. Country that believes in right things, has God on its side. I mean, right... Okay, correct. We know exactly where we are. So I came down here this morning. I am an employee here. I'm a hard-working man. I do exactly what I am paid to do. I am here. I, I, I do it. I go through my song and dance. I tap dance. I do my routine. I play my nose flute. I pick up my pittance and I go. I don't bother anybody, right? I have not rubbed anyone's fur the wrong way, correct? Okay, all right. Now, we know where he stand. I come down to this place this morning... And I I arrive in front of my office, this little hole in the wall that they have assigned to two or three of us, and I reach in my pocket and take out the key. I have a key, a a regular Yale lock key, you know, the official kind of key that opens apartments on the east side and that. And I go up to this, this door and I try to put the key in, nothing happens. I turn it over and I try it again, nothing happens. So then I take out my other gigantic pile of keys that are all attached to this long chain that keep falling out of my pocket and breaking at the horn and hard art and all that. So I, one by one, I try each one knowing full well that, that none of these are the keys to this door. But a man can't believe such a thing can happen. This is Saturday morning. The sun is shining. There are tourists walking up and down as though nothing is happening right there on Times Square. See, now listen carefully. This has to do with you, not me, you, all of us. And so I'm beginning to work around with this lock, and I suddenly it, it dawns on me I can't get in the office. I'm locked out. I call the the, the air conditioning the, the guys who who maintain the none of them can get in. The doors are all locked, and none of their keys work. This <laughs> is on Saturday morning in this country, America. I can't get in the office. Everything, all all the things I own, all the important things are locked in that office now. My nose flute, my commercials, what else is there in my life? So I come up to the studio here and all these people here are totally unconcerned, not knowing what is occurring. Now, I'd like to point out just exactly what this means. I have a suspicion that this has happened. it's, It's an awful thought. But do you realize this town is vulnerable? We are wide open on Saturday mornings. All you poor clowns are sitting out in Darien. You poor idiots are sitting on your duffs out there in New Rochelle, not knowing nothing about what's going on in your office on a Saturday morning. And I'm I'm inquiring around here, and I asked the elevator operator, I said, what, 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 what? Was, was there anybody up here? He says, why, yes, a short, stout man wearing a dark overcoat with a velvet collar appeared, carrying a thin briefcase and a large ring of keys. He left, he said, within ten minutes. It could very well be possible that this man, this short, stout man, is only one of a large phalanx of short, stout men bearing briefcases who have appeared all over Manhattan. Do you realize what this could do to this country if Monday morning two and a half million men descend upon Manhattan with the wrong keys? What is the first assumption you make when, you're, when your key doesn't work in the lock? Of course, you know what the first thing that you think of in this, in this town. You arrive at your office, you try the key, you immediately get in the elevator, go down and head for the unemployment office. It's all there is to do. Either that or you go right back home on the 1037 and you arrive back in, in Darien. You go home and you say, I left my keys. Where are my keys? I could see this beautiful scene of the guy arriving home. He says, hey, uh, uh, hey, Mabel, I left my keys for crying out loud. It's about 11 o'clock now. Am I? And, and his wife says, What do you mean you left your keys? You don't have, there are no keys here. I must have taken the wrong keys, Mabel. Come on now. Give me them keys. Hurry up. I left them on the on the buffet for crying out loud. Hurry up. And she goes in and rustles through the buffet. She says there's a couple of keys to the garage here. She says, well, now, come on, the keys. Give me the keys quick. These keys don't work. These are the only keys you've had, Charles. And then the panic begins to hit Charlie. He sits down and says, why didn't they have the guts to tell me? Why didn't they tell me, me? Why didn't they tell you? Look. I have a suspicion, what with the abstract life that we're all involved in, the paper life, the life of deep, abject fear that most of us live in, and and it's a fear, it's not a fear really of bombs. It's not a fear of the decline of Western civilization, let me tell you, in spite of what the writers write about. It is not a fear of, 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 of of the great threat of rising imperialism in the East. None of these things bother the average guy, oh no. It's the terrible, sneaking suspicion that one day they're going to discover what a phonus bolognus he really is, and not even with so much as the to to, to even to dignify it. With a pink slip, blue slip, or green slip, they merely just changed the lock. That's all there is to it, and he'll know exactly why they did it. And I, I, I fully believe that this country could be invaded, could be disrupted, completely destroyed... For for three whole days, no one would even, would even find it out because no one would have the guts to say anything to the next guy. They locked me out of the office. The only thing that would happen would be by Wednesday, there would be 17.5 million guys lined up in front of the unemployment office on 42nd Street, all of them pretending that, you know, I mean, carrying on with the big front until somebody by about 3 o'clock in the afternoon would discover that the unemployment guys have been locked out and they are in the line, too. And by then, of course, uh, uh, someone would appear on the radio and say, it's all over. It is all over. We have the keys now. And to the right thinkers in the audience, to the right thinkers in this big country of ours, this wonderful country which is now ours, to the right thinkers will go the right keys. Apply. Signed the Commissar. So I, I believe that George Orwell was wrong. Seriously, it's not going to be the way Orwell said it was. It's not going to even be the way Huxley said it was. (laughs) Oh, this could be happening right now. You better call your office this very minute. You had better call your office this very minute because I am locked out. I have no commercials. I have nothing, nothing. I stand before you, a man, not only shorn of his commercials and his nose flute, but shorn of his dignity, too. And all I can say is to my fellow Americans for crying out loud... Why didn't we think of this? Well, I guess in a way, we had it coming to us. I mean, in a sense, we did. We, we abdicated all along the line, each one of us. I mean, I, I, I'll admit, I'll admit, I, I never I never realized the value. I, I can just see. <laughs> Do you realize that I'm locked out of the men's room? Huh. I mean, you know what this can result in. <laughs> I don't have to go any further with that. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people just wait and see. Monday, don't be, don't be out there laughing. Don't laugh at all. Because the time is going to come, say, about 3 o'clock Monday afternoon, you're going to remember where you heard it first. Not on Winchell's program or on Barry Gray. Edward R. Murrow didn't even note, it, note that it was happening. So concerned was he over the Middle Eastern crisis right here in our very midst. Well, I think we had it come. I mean, I, I'm walking. I mean, the, the, little, the signs are there. The, the, the signs are there, really. They've been all around us for centuries. This morning, I'm walking along, and I, I come to... I'm on 7th Avenue, and I'm about maybe at 52nd, 53rd Street, something like that, on 7th Avenue. And there is a typical American family group milling around. They have come in from Millfield, New Jersey, or Milling Pond, Connecticut. And they have arrived, and they are sort of standing on the corner there, and there's a short, stout father type, a real fa- This guy was born with a, with a, with a salt-and-pepper mustache. His mother had a difficult time. He was born with a, with a salt-and-pepper mustache. He's standing there, and he's kind of milling. He's pear-shaped, and his wife is a sort of pear-shaped wife. And they're milling, and they're, they have this look on the face of, well, where shall we go now? What are we going to do? We are in the big city now. This is what we've come for. Now where to? Will it be the Roxy to see the Rockettes? Shall we go down to Rockefeller Center and just watch the flags flop? Or shall we, you know, you know this this thing. Well, here we are. Now what? And they're standing around. A mother's looking west and he's looking east. And there are two gawky, gangling kids of the modern progressive school type kids. You know, you can always tell the way the girl brushes her hair and the kind of blazer that the kid wears. They're much better dressed than the parents. All the dough has been invested in these two striplings. And the two were standing there. (laughs) And, And I heard this. I'm going to tell you exactly what I heard. Father has said, obviously, what he wants to do. Mother has countermanded what he wants to do. She has something else. They're both standing there. And this tall, brushed girl, who already, at the age of 13, has a little set of letters above her head that say, Betrothed. You know, you can just see her looking right out of the Herald-Trib Society page. And she says to mother and father with a commanding voice, that's the sad part of it. She says, let's have a discussion. Let's have a discussion. This is the, a democratic discussion. You see, this is the ideal of all the Spocks, all the parent magazines, 17, Zip, Pip, Quick, all the rest of them, that whenever things are going wrong, have a discussion. Rely on the judgment of these idiotic 13-year-olders. And in the end, give in to them, you see, through a long series of illogical arguments. And so I'm walking there, and and this chick, this 13-year-older, says, Let's have a discussion. And poor father, I could see he just sort of wilted a little bit, and mother wilted a little bit, and I knew what the discussion was going to result in. And it's no wonder we've lost our keys. It is no wonder we we have lost the combination to the lock. (laughs) <laughs> and and, and I, I go, you know, about ten minutes before that, I'm, I'm walking past Carnegie Hall, and here is a real shraft lady standing out. This is, by the way, the, the gathering place for shraft ladies on Saturday afternoons and Saturday nights, and they're all standing out there, and there's one wearing, you know, the kind of fur wrap, the little fur wrap that looks like a kind of a brownish fur, fur wrap that, that kind of goes halfway around the shoulders and hangs down to about the shoulder blades, you know, this little kind of... what do they call those things? These, these are old lady type. Is that a stole? Well, she's got this thing around her, and she's wearing this little pa- pot turned upside down on her head, you know, a real shrafty hat. And and she's standing there, and and this is exactly what happened. I'm going to I'm going to outline to you why we have lost our keys. We have lost the combination. And <laughs> I'm walking past her, paying absolutely no attention to this old gal. And she's paying no attention to me. And all of a sudden, she's, for for heaven's sakes, for pity's sakes. And I turned, you know, I thought she was saying something to me. And she, she tore out on the sidewalk and kind of went into an Immelman turn. You know, a slow looping turn, made a turn to the right. And there, another one who looked exactly like her, came darting out of a doorway. And they both clasped each other. She says, Emily, for pity's sakes, I've been waiting for a dog's age. Where have you been? And Emily says, right here in the doorway, Clara. And they were both clinging to each other, and I thought, oh, what a touching scene. And all of a sudden, Emily says, Clara, for crying out loud, let's grab a hot dog and get in line. <laughs> and the two of them went into Needix right there next to Carnegie. Let's grab a hot dog. It's no wonder we've lost our keys. Uh, speaking of the lost, this is WOR, AM and FM, New York. Friendly, reliable, sober, industrious, and vaguely confused. Now let's beat out a message via TomTom. Isolate light, isolate light. Precisely light, precisely light. Crisp free pressure, crisp free pressure. Move that that was pretty good, wasn't it? All right, George, we ought to be locked out all our lives. Actually, I, I think... That, you know, it's a funny thing. I'd like to make a point here. Now, don't, don't be too frightened. It is quite possible you are locked out. Now, you have all of Saturday afternoon, you have all of Sunday morning and Sunday evening to contemplate it. Now, there's another side to this thing. It isn't as bad as it seems. In fact, it is much better than it seems. I have a suspicion that the best thing that could happen to 90% of the males in this country would be to be locked out. I mean, I'm serious about that. I mean, I know a whole lot of guys who, if they were relieved of the responsibility of telling the boss what to do with his key, if they were relieved of the responsibility of quitting, they would sneak back home on the 532 with this fantastic sense of relief and, and, of course, they would be weeping and pretending that it was a terrible thing. And <laughs> They would arrive home, and they would go through all the motions. And then, then by Tuesday morning, they would awake, and they'd notice that sun's shining out there, and they would see, they'd hear a few of the birds whistling. And they would not even... It's, it's, it's a surprising thing how many of us go through our lives bound and shackled and held down by enormous chains, which we think, of course, are terribly important and necessary to our existence which, as in the matter of fact, are, are, are really the one agent that is preventing us from existing, from being really true and real, from being what we want to be. And, and uh, I, I can see... I, I would like to know... I'd just like to know how many guys are sitting out there listening to this now. And their wives, of course, uh, think this is a ridiculous thing. What do you mean, Charles? Why <laughs> it would be terrible if Charles was locked out of the agency. I, I just wonder how many guys have this sneaking thing Deep inside of them, who are saying, "Oh boy, oh, would that be great? Oh come on, admit it! You know it would be great, because a lot of things would happen. First of all, that the, I think one of the things that has beginning has begun to worry many people in this country is the advancing, the, the constantly advancing effeminization of the male. Uh, it's really not it's it, it's really not as simple as that. That the that the advancing masculization of the female." has in so creating a new atmosphere has in a sense removed some of the masculinity from the male in short a male is only masculine when compared to a female and her degree of femininity it's not that the women have lost femaleness they have lost femininity it's not that the males have lost maleness they have lost masculinity and so uh, as you as you look around you see all the all the stage shows almost all of the movies today uh, feature the, the new stars who have come up since about 1949 or 50 are all vaguely feminine. Uh, that is to say, they're not outwardly completely masculine, say in the Spencer Tracy mold of a previous era, you see, total masculine, you know, or, or in, the, in the mold of, say, the Clark Gables, or a mold of the, of the Victor McLaughlins of the past. I mean, this was a, a complete masculine man. And so gradually there has been a change, a slight coloring of it all. And I could just see this little man who, who, whose sole function in life has been to supply an endless stream of dollars for the, quote, activities of the family. The station wagons that are coming and going, and the kids that are going to this school and that school, the, the, the wife who's going to this club and that club, and the whole bit, his sole function has been to s- supply this endless stream. Funny thing the elevator operator said today, I'm coming in. And he said it right out of the blue. Funny, you know, Saturday mornings, I think, are very valuable times for consulting your navel. Really. Because, honestly, a lot of the hoopla and a lot of the, a lot of the paper bag uh, popping and a lot of the uh, paper doll cutting out has ceased, you know, in these places. And you begin to see things for what they are. The file cabinets look gray and deserted and a little menacing and, and very faceless. They look okay, you know, when there's a lot of girls standing in front of them, moving the drawers up and down. But, boy, they look something else again when you see them with nobody. They just sit there waiting. And they contain all of our lives, all of ours, right there, packed away in alphabetical order, cross-indexed. And so I come in here, you know, and I, I'm, I'm very quietly standing on the elevator with my cup of lukewarm coffee. And the elevator operator suddenly turns to me and says, I don't know what it's about. I said, What? Huh? Huh? What? He said, I don't know. So I, I figure some of these guys are going to come in here on Judgment Day. I said, What? <laughs> what? And then I'm beginning to wake Judgment Day. I hear, the, I hear the, the great bugles blowing and the gong, and I wonder how suddenly... Judgment Day, and I'm waking out of my, my lethargy. I said, Judgment Day? What, 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 what do you mean Judgment Day? He said, Well, I'll tell you. He says, You know, there are some guys... I've been riding this elevator now for 20 years. There are some guys who come into this office seven days a week into this building, they come in at seven o'clock in the morning, they don't leave until 10 o'clock at night. and they do this seven they've been doing it now for 20 years. I don't know how long they were doing it before I came here and how long they're going to do it after I leave. They are going to come in on Judgment Day. Wonder what these guys get out of life. And I had no answer. Absolutely no answer. And then I begin to think, you know, I get off the elevator and I walk back with my key held hopefully in my hand. And I try it in the door and I'm locked out. And I'm struggling around. There's a the first moment of panic and then there's the great moment of relief. And I turn around, I'm walking away from the door, okay, and it suddenly occurred to me that that, that these guys that most of these guys who spend their lives going up and down elevators and shuffling papers back and forth are are running as hard as they can, just as wildly and as hard as they can, from something else. They're not running to something. They're running away from something. And they're running away from, from this involvement with mankind and with the human being, with the family, with the people. Because you're not involved with people at all when you're involved with file cabinets and papers and deals. That's totally abstract. And I'm, I'm going up the stairway then. I try the men's... R- I'm locked out. I'm wandering around there, and I'm, I'm disenfranchised. And I say, well, you know, maybe, 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 maybe the bugles are getting ready to blow. Who knows? And and, and I suspect in some ways that, that they might be. Uh, like today, I'm walking... These, these are all things that happened to me today. Exactly. All in one line. Just lined right up. I'm walking along. I, I know... know Oh, I, maybe I passed one block after I heard Emily talking to Clara. And I'm in the next block, and I'm waiting for a light, and a cab pulls up. And I'm suddenly reminded of an incident that occurred to me four or five, maybe three or six or nine days ago. Are you a collector of, of cab companies' names? You know, don't fall into the idea that all cabs are just cabs. And, and don't don't begin to believe that they're all named either Yellow or Checker. They are not. That there are thousands of cabs in this country, right here in this in this city, that have a little red, a little red series of block letters on the back doors that tell the name of the cab company. Now, how this works is that if you're a cab company owner, and uh, and say you own uh, 100 cabs, well, for tax purposes, what these guys do is split their company up into about 30 different little companies, and each company owns three cabs. You see. It's kind of a corporation tax deal, and, and actually it's one big company, but there are 30 little corporations, and each one has to have a name that has to be put on the outside of the cab. And so they, they come up with some great names. I'm telling you, some of the greatest names. For example, there is the Money Cab Company. I mean, how's that for a guy getting right down to the basic of it all? I saw this one. I, I, by George, there's the Money Cab Company. And, and one day I get in the cab, and it says Friendly Cab Company. And I get in and there's this little gnarled cab driver sitting up there in the front seat and he's <laughs> And you know, this kind of guy who 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 is who has a constant stream, an untapped stream of obscenity, just running right through him like a like a fountain, and it bubbles out of his ears and out of his eyes and out of his <sighs> yeah and there's hate little little lines of hate extending from him and it's as though he has he has thorns growing out all over him, and there are little filaments reaching out that that have poisonous tentacles on the <laughs> and I arrive at the end of my trip <laughs> I had the guy I had the guy his tip here i've gone you know it's getting to the point now you know all those little cab driver tricks, for example, giving you your change in all dimes. The reason this is done, of course, so that you can't give 15-cent tips. So if you get a 40-cent a, a cab ride, he would give you your change in all dimes. You can't give him a dime tip. You wind up giving him a 50-percent tip, you know, 20 cents for a block. And, and so <laughs> he tries this routine, and I reach in my pocket, and I got a nickel. So uh, here, here we've gone this little way. We've gone about four blocks or something like that, and I give him 15 cents, uh, which is a standard tip for this little... Well, yeah. <laughs> He looks at me like that. And he, pow, he slams the door. And there goes the friendly cab company off in the distance. <laughs> then there was another great moment that happened to me. I get in a cab on Madison Avenue the other day. And it's one of those those terrible moments when when we turn left we get into a cross town street and every truck every bicycle every motor scooter fourteen thousand cabs ninety-five policemen seven fire trucks everything is converged on us we are completely trapped and i'm sitting there and all i can hear is the sound of muffled curses around me and the and the tick of the meter my lifeblood is dripping out of me on the floor like that you see I'm sitting there for about 40 minutes, it seemed, and the smoke is rising and the steam and, and it's, it's hot. You know, it's really hot already there, you know. It's hot. And you can see the city. It, it might as well be in mid-August, steaming. And finally, it's off oh, crying out loud. And I get out of the cab and by now I run up a bill of a buck. So I give the guy a dollar and a quarter and I slam the door and I look at the, and there it is, the name on the door. And I'm telling you, this happened to me. Listen to this. The Hopeless Cab Company. <laughs> I paid this guy the dollar and a quarter and I go off down the street amid all the guys pushing the little carts and fist fighting and standing around by the fire plugs and I'm wending my way through and I says, by George Shepard, you have just seen the truth. You have just suddenly right there in the middle of Babylon on the Hudson, it has hit you. The hopeless cab company. And and some other poor clown, as soon as I got out of the cab, you know, he flipped the flag up and down and the light went on and some other poor idiot got in and sat. <laughs> The feeling of of the River Sticks and Sharon and the whole crowd. And this cab driver was one of those jowled type you know, the, the dark, silent type of cab driver that just sits there. Doesn't say anything. He's got one arm hanging out the door and he just sits. And on the back of his back seat was a little sign that said, Keep smiling in blue letters. Keep smiling in the hopeless cab company's cab. Just sitting there. Just sitting there, waiting for it to happen. It's like, it's like. Of course, uh, you see, I, I have the, I have the sensation that, that, we are, we are really all of us secretly, and and I and I don't like to, I don't like to pound a nail, you know, down, 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 down. I, I pound a nail too deeply under the surface because it's there. You don't have to say it. Sometimes there are many things that do not have to be said and shouldn't be said, and one of them is. Well, I'm going to say, Beckett said it, Samuel Beckett, Jonathan Swift said it, uh, a lot of people have said it, uh, Plato said it in one way, Aristotle said it, certainly Euripides said it. And it's this, that underneath all those layers, all those those onion-skin layers of existence, there lies that one little thing somewhere deep down inside of man that is waiting for something. And he doesn't quite know what it is. He is waiting, 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 waiting. And so he's sitting there on his duff all throughout all eternity, just, just waiting, always waiting. And, and the other day, I had, a, I had a wonderful test of this the other day. Uh, I, I'm sitting there at my, at my scraggy old desk, and suddenly the phone rings. Well, uh, I, it's taken me years to learn to avoid ringing phones. That, that uh, No, really, it has. Uh, seriously, I, uh, one, of the, one of the hardest tests of a man's courage is to let a phone ring and not answer it, because all of us expect, on the other end, is going to be the answer. We pick it up, you know, that hopeful feeling of picking up, and there's that same old clown. Uh, You know, your old cast of characters, they're still making their appearances. Wouldn't you like to get a call from somebody great one time? I mean, don't, don't you ever get sick of the cast of characters that you're playing in your play with? Really? Can you imagine the program of your play The play that you're part of, cast of characters, leading characters, features, bit part players, heavies, villains, good guys, bad guys. What a scrunchy, nothing crowd. I mean, not one distinguished name in the lot. Not one man who rises above real mediocrity. I mean, wouldn't you like to have a cast of characters that include Daryl Zanuck, uh, President Truman, uh, Abe Stark, uh, all the way on down the line. These are the people that pl- are playing parts out in here. But but the, I pick up the phone, it's the same old guys. You know, hello, yeah. And there's nothing on the end of the line. They're nothing this time. Guy's just sitting out there breathing. You can hear him breathing on the phone. I say, hello, what do you want? He says, and it's a friend of mine. I recognize the voice, but he's got a crack in his voice now. He says, did it come yet? He says, what? He says, I guess it didn't. I says, no, and hung up. And, and I, I recognized for an instant that there was a moment of recognition there between he and I, him and me, us and them, we and you. <laughs> We're all waiting for it to come. <laughs> and, and about ten minutes later, I dialed him back and I said, what? Did what come? He says, nothing. Doesn't matter anymore. And I've never mentioned it to him again. But but it's all part and parcel of the same problem. It's the same thing. I mean, it's, it's the waiting, just sitting around waiting. It's summer now, you see. You have been waiting for summer, right? I mean, every, sure, everybody's been wa- vaguely waiting for summer. If you haven't, then your glands are giving you trouble. And I would suggest you do something. One of the suggestions of Carlton Fredericks might do it. You are having trouble with juice. I would suggest, you know, I mean, a little deep knee bends and a few of this. But most of us have been have been thinking about this, waiting for summer to come. All right, it's here. Now what? So now you're going to go out to Jones Beach. Sit on your duff for a while out there. And this will go on for a while. And then vaguely you'll begin to wait for fall. And And this waiting... And this expectancy that the next season is always going to transcend all the other seasons you have known can be seen in the shop windows, that already by June they will be showing fall clothes, and everyone will be feeling vaguely happy about it. Oh, boy, it's going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be wonderful. I have to wear a new sweater <laughs> and all this. And, and by, the time, by the time November arrives, spring clothing will already be in the, in the windows. Do you remember? Just before Christmas they were showing them already. And and I'd say by, oh, the end of May, there will be summer clearances already, getting rid of it all. And, and it's getting to be more and more advanced, you see, more and more. I remember one time there was an automobile company. See, the point that I'm making here is that most of us live either in the past or in the future. That, that if we live in the future, we're always saying, oh, it's going to be all right. I'm just going or if we live in the past, we say, oh... I mean, you guys, oh, the good old, let me tell you about the good old days. (laughs) Hardly anybody swings for the now. This is the rarest kind of individual. Perhaps he doesn't even exist at all because of what man is, you see. Uh, The the conscience on one hand, the imagination on the other. You see, the imagination takes you out of your current situation and, and shoots you forward to this cleaner, better, brighter, unsullied time. Or, and the conscience takes you back to a simpler time. Hence, a time of less sin in your own life, or whatever it is that you live. I will not call it a life. And so, till we go along there, and I remember about three or four years ago, there was a car company. Who remembers this? There was a car company that had a great big sign that said, Suddenly, it's 1960! Do you remember that? Well, here it is. Of course, the implication being that... that since 1960 seems so far in the future, that 1960 was going to be a year when all, this, all the problems were solved and we have finally reached that ultimate stage of development and uh, whatever it is, progression, that there will be no more difficult, that, that if you could get something that is going to be developed in 1970, now many of your problems will be solved. That these things will go It's It's kind of an illusion that man is constantly improving himself by the machines and the things around him. It's a very, very comforting illusion, too, I might point out. And, and yet, as each successive model comes and goes, last year's model is infinitely inferior to this year's model. You notice that? Last year's model just doesn't make it, in spite of the facts that this year's model is now in the garage having work done on its transmission you see it constantly eternally it goes this way the, the the feeling and the desire that change should be always and is always by the very nature of change good it is good and so suddenly it's 1960 do any of you remember that ad I will award the brass figleggy with bronze oak leaf palm if you can if, if you can just tell me the name of the company that did that suddenly it's 1960 well, suddenly it is, 1960. you feel cleaner, brighter? Do, do you have the new thin-line look? Do you? Are you sociable now? I mean, has it happened in the last three years? Have things really begun to square away now? Really, really begun to have that, that, that new clean look? I mean, in your life, you see, as opposed to the new clean look of the buildings that are rising around us. Or the cars that are, are sprouting up everywhere. The new, clean look in your life. Smoothed, sanded down, and made of green glass. Totally transparent and, above all, antiseptic. No, no. Never to be sullied by those dirty footprints of short, squat little boys who are wearing worn tennis shoes, slopping through the mud of existence. Clop, 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 clop. I just wonder how many how many people. Then again, that's another that's another consideration. I'm on the phone, you see, and I'm. <laughs> it's it's a it's a funny thing. The other day, I call up my agency. I got this agent. Now th- now the agent the agent client relationship is a very tenuous one, and one that I think a, a couple of big magazines like Esquire could very well do a good article on. And in fact, I'm the guy to do it, Esquire. If you're listening, you idiots and clowns. I mean, I, uh, the sad thing about it was that they had a guy recently, and I'm not going to name magazines, but there was a guy who did a story on old radio. By old radio, he means radio about the time of the war and just before. And it was one of the most amateurishly written, uh, badly conceived articles on old radio that I've ever come across. Sad. Get somebody who knows something about it, people. Anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm talking to my agent. And I call up and I say, "Anything shaken, Milt?" Milt says, "No nope, power things with you." I say, "Okay, Milt. Thank you." I hung up. I'm sitting there thinking, and then I began to see that eventually the the entire population of the United States and perhaps even the world is going to be divided into two people: clients and agents. And and the the idea, of course, clients and agents. The idea uh, everybody has an agent today. I mean, even guys who used to just deal with agents. The agent has kind of wormed his way in between the producer and the performer, whatever it will be. And I have a suspicion now that in the next ten years there will be agents for elevator men. They will, they'll be calling their agents. There will be agents for for milkmen. Everyone will have an agent. And the agent then will, of course, have to go out and hire an agent. Do you know that I know an agent at MCA who has an agent who handles him at William Morris? and handles all his deals with MCA? I mean, do you understand the implications of this? Do you know what I'm saying? That an agent has gotten to the point where he has an agent who handles his business with the agency he works for. And by the way, I found out uh, for sure now, you know, all these radio stations that, that are constantly selling time, weather, temperature, and news, I found out that Ashley Steiner has the news account. Ashley Steiner handles all world events. That's their package. That if you do any news, you got to contact Ashley Steiner. If you do, if you do the time, it's William Morris. They have the time account wrapped up. Has it ever occurred to you that Alexander King is the Liberals' Norman Vincent Peale, and just about as shallow, and about as didactic? <laughs> Stand back! I'm an eagle. I, George, I'm an eagle. Now. On the other hand, if you're going to, if you're going to be, you've got to do something about your claws, Charlie. They're just not gelling. You've got to do, did I ever tell you about the time that my Aunt Teresa, you know, every family has an insane aunt. Now, I'm not talking about the aunt that is confined. That's not the kind of aunt that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the angry aunt. The angry aunt, who, if she were literate, would write long letters to the post, You know, the kind of long letters that are constantly written to the post? Signed, disgusted. (laughs) Well, anyway, my Aunt Teresa, because of her basic anger, my Aunt Teresa used to leave every party with that fire in her eye and screaming at the entire family that never again would she talk to them, ever, ever, ever again. And I began to understand, of course, as a very small child, that strife, S-T-R-I-F-E, is one of the great vital motivating factors in human existence it is well of course uh, th- this has to be told aunt teresa used to go for jello molds you know the kind of mo- she used to mold things out you know they get the little tin molds <laughs> uh, she used to mold things like uh, you know uh, salads uh, jello fruit salads and things and they, they always had these little round uh, fluted looking arrangements on them, and then she used to mold things in the form of clover leaves, and then she used to mold, she she molded everything. I'm telling you, she did. She used to mold her, her, her meatloaf. I'll never forget the time I went to her house, and she had a meatloaf that was molded in the form of a lamb. You know the kind of things they use for Easter once in a while to make cakes? One of the worst things that ever happened to me was the time I went to a party about Easter time, and I'm sitting there, I'm a little kid, I'm about 12 or 13 years old, this is when you begin to, you know, you begin to understand, or you, you don't really begin to understand, you begin to see things in the world, but you can't put them together. Now, the idea of being able to put together widely divergent, almost uh, completely self-canceling facts that somehow seem to make sense to people is called maturation. Sadly enough, that the older a person gets, the less he can see the, the idiocies of the lives that many of us live, the, the complete canceling out. Uh, a churchman, for example, getting up talking about brotherly love in a segregated church seems to make sense to a lot of people well this is a, this is the whole the whole thing that i 'm talking about we can we can put these things together and never seem to escape, but a kid can't you see he does not know the proper answers, not that are arrived at by any kind of logic but quote proper answers and so i 'm sitting there i 'm a kid and um uh, and they they it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an Easter thing, you know, and it's a party, and all of them are there. Esther Jane, Dawn, did I ever tell you about Dawn Strickland? I cannot hear the word Dawn today without getting a, a kind of a shaky feeling deep down inside of my stomach. Oh, she was fantastic. I, I mean, I knew her, uh, let's say, from the age of six up through about twelve. And it was the most, oh, I I never once even uttered a word to this girl. But I was, uh, you know, it's the wordless, soundless, adoring love. And if Dawn Strickland showed up, she could be 350 pounds, have nine kids, and wear brass knuckles. I would just fall flat on my face, right in front of her, with geraniums growing out of my ears. I mean, she's just like that. If, if if, If somebody called me up and just said, I'm Dawn, my name is Dawn. I would be putty. I would be jello. I would be I would be silly putty in your hands. No use at all, just to make odd little shapes out of me. That's all. Well, anyway, I'm sitting there, and it's this it's this party, see, and and the woman comes out who was the mother of the house, and she puts right down in the middle of the table, right in front of me, a big cake made in the shape of a lamb, with white icing on it and covered with coconut to give you the idea it's fur, you know, and it's it's wool. And, and and it had two little blue marbles for eyes looking right at me and a pink ribbon around its neck. And I'm looking at this lamb. It's a lamb right there in front of me. And, and Esther Jane gets up with the carving knife and lops its head right off and says, This is for you. <laughs> Great Scott. Speaking of the shorn lamb, this is... This is WOR Radio, your station. Not for shorn Lambs, but for news. A man with drive. A man man with drive. drive. Yes.